Welcome to the New Note. I'm your host, Vaughn Nkosi, coming to you by way of the Institute for Local Innovations. I am talking with Dr. Kelly Burton today. Hey, Kelly, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? My name is Kelly Burton. I am the CEO of Founders of Color, an online community for minority entrepreneurs, as well as Nexus Research Group, which is a social impact consulting firm where we work with large-scale nonprofits and foundations. Excellent. So that's good background. Now, one thing, and we'll get to the business side of this later, because you left out a company, and I want you to talk about that. Because <laughs> <Even the defunct laughs> I think that's part of the journey, right? Yes, indeed. Yeah. But before then, let's um, go back to the beginning. So I am originally from Camden, New Jersey, which is right outside of Philadelphia. And when I was growing up in Camden in the 80s, I was born in the late 70s, but I grew up there in the 80s. But when I was there, when we lived there, Camden was the murder capital of the country, which might seem strange. Um, because it's this itty bitty town that a lot of people have never heard of, but that's one of the reasons that it was the murder capital because it's it's the small population, but this um, large kind of concentration of, of murders. Wow! And so uh, it was a pretty rough place to grow up. With that said, we had a very kind of working class experience growing up. My parents married young. My mom was eighteen. My dad was nineteen. And uh, they had me a year later. When I was about two or three, we moved to Camden from Philadelphia. Both my parents are from North Philadelphia. Uh, so we're, we're from the hood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, from right. the, we're from the hood. Um, I can always sense people from Philadelphia. You know, you meet folks, you're like, oh, you're from Baltimore. Oh, you're from Chicago. Oh, you're from New York. I, when I meet Philly folks, I'm like, ah, you're from Philadelphia. Because there's a certain grit. Mm. grittiness of uh, when it comes to folks who are from Philly. My dad um, worked for TWA and uh, my, my parents were homeowners. I think my dad bought his first house when he was about 23, 24 years old. And so we had a very working class uh, experience. My mom worked um, two on and off. Um, she stayed home with me and my sister for a good bit. My parents got divorced when I was about 12 years old. And my mom moved me, her, and my sister um, out to uh, Moorestown, New Jersey, which was maybe about 20 miles away in terms of distance, but it was a world away in terms of, of opportunity. And I think through that experience, I really saw how place matters and where you live matters in terms of the sorts of things that you're exposed to and the opportunity that you have access to. Something triggered for you when you said that? in terms of exposure and opportunity. Unpack that a little bit. So Morristown gives you some sense of the difference. I remember growing up there, we lived in an apartment complex that was on the edge. It was on the fringe of the community, so we barely made it in. Literally, like I could could walk 10 minutes and be in the next town, Um, and the school district was very different. So we lived in an apartment complex on the, on the edge of the town. And this city, this town was known, it had a mall, very kind of high-end mall at the time. And it was known for having all of the, a lot of the professional athletes that played for the Philadelphia Flyers, which was the hockey team. It had an excellent um, public school system, you know, middle school, elementary, middle, and high school. And it was almost exclusively white. Um, I remember when, we, when I graduated from high school, I can count on my two hands and have fingers left the number of African-Americans who graduated in our class of maybe 200 or so. So um, just a different level of affluence um, than I was accustomed to, than I saw that scene growing up in, in Camden. Definitely different than what I saw when I visited my grandparents in North Philadelphia. It was just a different world, different expectations placed on the kids, different set of resources, just all around different. Any major turning points between that time and the time you left for um, college? You know, it was just very clear that kids in the community just had a different level of access to resources. And I keep coming back to that, but I'll give you an example. I was preparing to take the SAT, and I knew I wanted to leave New Jersey. I really wanted to get into Syracuse because I wanted to do communications. They have one of the best communication schools in the country. 
and there was a prep course. They'd send out flyers throughout the school, and the prep course was like $1,000 in order to be able to take it. And all of my friends, you know, the kids in my class had signed up. And they were like, well, Kelly, are you, you signing up for the SAT class? And I'm thinking to myself, absolutely not. My, my mom can't afford $1,000 to send me to SAT prep. You know, I'm just going to have to go to the you know, local bookstore, whatever it was at the time, and get, grab me a Kaplan's book and go to town. And that's exactly what I did. Mm. Um, and I didn't do as well on the SAT. I was just slightly above average. And whatever my numbers were, they were not good enough for Syracuse. And I did not get in. And I ultimately ended up attending Clark Atlanta University. And it was supposed to go that way. But I remember being incredibly disappointed because I just didn't have access to the academic resources that I felt that I needed in order to be really competitive for an opportunity like that. Interesting. And here you are, Dr. Burton. Yeah. <laughs> you are listening to The New Note. This is where we talk with transformational, next generation, mid-career, bridge, encore, and emeritus entrepreneurs. Let's talk 18 to 25. Anything happened at Clark that jumps out at you? Because I know we have a lot of people in our network now who are over there in, in uh, the AU Center. So. Yeah, yeah. The reason I came to Clark after being rejected by Syracuse, of course, I had done a college tour that went to maybe a half dozen schools throughout the Southeast HBCUs. And I really fell in love with Clark Atlanta. I loved Clark. And coming from a predominantly white uh, high school, middle school, there's a certain isolation that you experience, especially if you have a traditional, what I call like a traditional African-American upbringing. Mm. Culturally, it's very different. And it can be very isolating. And so I look forward to attending CAU because, you know, I wanted to be with my people. I wanted mm-hmm. to be around people who, who looked like me, who got me, who understood my cultural references. And I didn't have to do a lot of explaining. That mattered to me. Even when I was in high school, I was the president of the African-American Association. And so there's just always this yearning and longing to be kind of proximate to, to folks like me. And so at an HBCU, you get a lot of that. <laughs> right, yep, yep. For better or for worse. Yeah, yeah. for me, for better, you know. Go Hampton. Go Hampton, right. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so real quick, let's back up. You mentioned you were the president of what in high school? The African American Club. And how many yeah. of you guys were in the club? Maybe about maybe about twenty twenty five of us uh, on a good day. On a good day. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. We'd have our little meetings and do our events and special something during African American History Month. Or, gotcha. Yeah. Are we talking about what years? Sure, nineties, mid nineties. I graduated from high school in ninety six. Okay. Left to go to CAU. So I just missed Freaknik. Oh. Uh, I was told <laughs> that the. The hot days of Freaknik were like 94, 95. I got there like right after the Olympics left. And I got there in mid-August and everything had already been gone. And so I was, uh, I was a year late. Yeah, some would argue you didn't miss anything. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's what you say now, but you know, back then. <laughs> I just got right. the tail end. Yeah, cool. Okay, so you're at Clark. Any yeah. instructors, any professors? Ed Clark left any indelible marks on you. <laughs> <laughs> My time at CAU was a blur. Hmm. Yeah, that might sound surprising from folks because from many people they remember their HBCU experience fondly, and I do remember mine fondly. HBCUs are amazing in that they do a really good job of meeting everyone where they are. Most HBCUs are incredibly nurturing. And so while I was at CAU, I had to work. I always had to hold down a relatively full-time job and an internship. So from sophomore year on, sure, it was school, but I also always was, had a full-time job. Usually it was waiting tables. Um, really? Uh-huh. Yep. I, I waited tables all the way through college. I worked at the Foot Locker at the underground in my freshman year. But then from then on, I worked as a server. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So what restaurants did you work in? Primarily $3 Cafe on Peachtree Street. 
You know, like yep. on Peachtree. Yeah, the you best wings in town. <laughs> <laughs> Which um, I'm sure I must not be there anymore. What cross street? Peachtree and Far Road, and so. Oh, you're uh, up there. Oh yeah, 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 with the Ferris wheel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the exact property right across from the Cheesecake Factory. Right, right, yep. right, right. Yep. Yep. Wow. Yep. Yeah, I wonder yeah. if I ever saw you in there. Probably, probably. Yeah. I was right. I was in there all the time. All <laughs> my, I was doing my weekend doubles. Oh, wow. in there From 10 o'clock in the morning to 1 o'clock in the morning. Uh, going home, dreaming about filling people's sweet teas and waters. I remember whenever I would have a double shift, my brain would still be going in my sleep. And mm. I'd be worrying about, you know, whether or not I'd hit table 20 and had brought them their check. Um, wow. Wow. So. That's that's interesting. So you're working your way through undergrad. Yep. You also mentioned internship. Yep. Yeah. So the one that I remember, well, there were a couple of them. There were a couple at the state capitol because I was a, I was a political science major, and the representative I worked for, his last name was Maddox, and he and I stayed in touch for a few years after it, but I haven't thought about that in a very long time. But yeah, I had a couple of internships in the Capitol. How was the experience? It was eye-opening. I always wanted to be in public service. I just didn't know what I wanted to do, but it gave me some early stage exposure, for sure. You are listening in on my conversation with Dr. Kelly Burton, the CEO of Founders of Color. Applying for jobs out of undergrad, you know, at the city, entry-level positions in government, and they'd be paying $28,000, $32,000 a year. And I'm thinking to myself, I made a decent living yeah. um, at $3, money in my cash, money in my pocket. So that's when I realized, okay, so if I really want to work in this space, I probably need to go back to, to school. Um, mm. And for me, it was between law school and graduate school. And I remember I had a conversation with an attorney I'd had at, while I was in high school, I was in a really bad car wreck. And mm. it flipped over mm-hmm, a couple of times. And uh, I broke my ankle. And I had stayed in touch with this attorney because it was an ongoing case. And I remember reaching out to him when I was thinking about whether or not I wanted to go uh, to law school. And I said, okay, I have this choice. I'm, I'm going to either go to law school or go to graduate school. He said, go to graduate school. Huh. <laughs> The law profession is, uh, is highly oversaturated. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll definitely have a better career and quality of life if you go to graduate school. So I went to graduate school. You are listening to The New Note. This is where we discuss the life influences that have shaped transformational leaders, how they have walked in the world, and the paths they have taken that have brought them to where they are today and may lead them tomorrow. So that's the path. You went yep. to graduate school. Now, where did you go? I went to Emory, Emory University in Atlanta. Did you still have to work to put yourself to grad school? Well, the blessing was that I got a scholarship to go to Emory. So many of their grad programs are fully funded, which means they cover your tuition. And so I went to Emory at no cost to myself for the most part. The challenge with that is with the package, you get a $12,000 stipend. And with that stipend, you are not really allowed to work a full-time or part-time job. And so up till uh, maybe three years in, when I had done all my coursework and my comprehensive exams, I had to be on stipend. So that means I had to take student loans. Mm. And so while I didn't take on any debt from the tuition, because I'd gotten a scholarship, I did take on debt from the loans that I needed in order to pay my car note or pay my cell phone bill or pay my light bill. Gotcha. That 12000 wasn't covering it. Yeah, yeah. That's $1,000 a month. I know that, yeah. that, didn't, that didn't go far. No, no, sir. No, sir. So you jumped from, because you went like graduate school, you jumped to comps. So there was a, I'm missing, I'm missing a step in here. Right? <laughs> you went starting out in a master's program and flowed into your doctorate or help me out here. Yeah. So no, I came in with a bachelor's. Right. Yeah, I went straight to PhD. So I have two degrees. I have a bachelor's and I have a PhD. I don't have a master's degree. Interesting. How'd that, yeah. how, how's that? How's that? You get something it's, it's similar to a master's equivalent. And so that's the purpose of the comprehensive exam. You cross the threshold, mm-hmm. but it's not an actual, you don't receive a degree. It's almost like an equivalent that enables you to go on to the next level of obtaining your PhD. But yep. 
at the end of the day, I only have a, a BA and a PhD. Yeah, only. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. So you were at, let's let's in the time horizon. So you uh-huh. earned your doctorate at what age? Thirty-one, and I was really mad about that because I wanted to finish when I was 29. Um, <laughs> I was real salty. I'm telling you, it took me a while to get over that. I was, I was very salty. I wanted, to, I wanted to finish my PhD in my 20s, but uh, um, it, it took a little longer than that. So what I thought, kind of going back to your earlier question about whether or not I had a master's, I thought the program would take me five years, mm-hmm. but it took me seven years mm-hmm. um, because it was just that more difficult because I did not come in with a master's degree. And so... There was two, maybe two to three years of coursework, then your mm-hmm. comprehensive exams. And then it took me about two and a half years to write and get to the point of having a final uh, version of my dissertation. Okay. Yeah, but it was, uh, it, was, it was tough. There was definitely a difference in terms of resources. See, that's one of the major things I missed when I left Emory. There were so many good resources, um, stuff that you had access to that you didn't even realize. So that was really, really great. But CAU definitely had the edge when it came to the support, just feeling very supported, a sense of community, a sense that you were, in it, you, you were all in it together. The motto was find a way or make one. So mm. it was this sense that you can do it. But at Emory, being in session with kids who had been discussing this stuff around the dinner table since they could remember and them being able to be very eloquent and the way that they communicated ideas and concepts, I often felt very inadequate. And I had a couple of run-ins with professors and, and faculty, and I just didn't sense that there was a universal belief that I belong there and that I would excel there. And so I never felt that at, at CAU. So it was just a very different vibe and energy and level of support. And it's not to say I didn't, there was no one at Emory that supported me. Absolutely. I had my advocates, people who were advocating for me. Um, And, you know, I did the work. Got you. So having our paths somewhat similar from HBCU to which it was so funny, I guess it was five years ago when one of our mutual colleagues used the term PWI. And I was like, what in the world is a PWI? (laughs) I don't know if I was showing my age or... Ah. I was just out of the stream. It was like predominantly white institution. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself, well, if a place isn't an HBCU, <laughs> then it's got to be a PWI default, by default, right? right? But anyway, so that's, yeah. that's the term. You are listening to The New Note. The New Note is where we discuss how the future isn't what it used to be. This New Note podcast is really about you, but I want to provide some context going from Hampton in a very nurturing environment, as you said, and not having to explain yourself culturally. Mm-hmm. Now, 75 of us started, when I started in architecture, six of us came out. Wow. After five <laughs> years. So it's high yeah. attrition. Mm. You know, one studio class was 12 credit hours of, wow. an eight, of an 18-hour load. So you blow your studio class, you're done. It's a wrap. It's a wrap. Going through that rigor... Mm-hmm. And then going to Chicago to IIT, Illinois Institute of Technology. I, you know, I hate to say, because people have flipped it around on me. They said, oh, my God, my undergrad was easy. You mm-hmm. know, it was graduate school that was hard. Mm-hmm. I was like, really? I said, for me, less than 10% of us coming out after five years, by the time I got to IIT, mm-hmm. that was like duck soup. <laughs> 4.0, winning design competitions, wow. the foundation yep. of Hampton allowed me to have that peace to go into a, now what people call PWI, mm. and not trip on mm. the lack of support. Point being, yeah. leaving CAU, going to Emory, and I know you were in a different space working on a doctorate and things, and you know you have to keep your head down. But did you have a sense of, you know, I'm glad I went to CAU? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so similar to you, in my, in my cohort at Emory, I think there are eight of us that came in, eight or nine of us that came, at, that started back in, I don't know, whenever, <laughs> whenever I started, <laughs> 2001, 2002. 
um, and two of us graduated. So going back to your point, it was really hard. And Emory, that experience kicked my tail. I kicked my tail. And I want to say something else, but I'm sure this <laughs> is PG, so I'm going to keep it clean. <laughs> but, um, you know, it kicked my butt. It kicked my butt. And I'm going to tell you, at, in that moment, I felt woefully unprepared or underprepared. But to be perfectly fair, those other five people who did not, or six people who did not make it through the program, I assure you, they did not go into a, to an HBCU, right? Mm. And they didn't make it out. So I think my, my personal perspective was that, oh, I went to this HBCU, and here I am at this PWI, and I'm getting my tail kicked. I feel like I wasn't prepared. But at the end of the day, um, there are six other people who didn't make it out of the program. What was their excuse? You know, <laughs> was, did their undergraduate program also underprepare, or is it just really freaking hard? Yeah. Um, and I think the the answer to that is probably it was just probably really freaking hard um, and very tough. I tell people all the time because when you when you have a PhD and people see that if they have aspirations to go to graduate school, they'll ask, "Oh, well, you know, I'm thinking about getting my PhD. What do you think?" And I'm like, keep thinking because <laughs> you know, it's, it's not all it's tracked up to be. Um, people are attracted to this notion of having this alphabet soup behind your name. But usually that soup is very expensive. It's expensive soup. And um, it's meaning less and less in this highly digital, highly technological age, unless you want to teach. And if teaching in a research university is your, your heart's desire, then yes. Um, if not, then you, it, you might want to recalculate unless you're trying to go into the hard sciences or something. And it's something that you need for your career, but otherwise ask around. So, <laughs> so that, that, that's kind of my take on that. Gotcha. Okay. You, you've given some nuggets here about undergrad, your working life, where you've come from. You talked about Emory. Mm -hmm. graduate school, the doctoral program. Now I'm jumping back to when you and I met-ish. Mm -hmm. yep. okay. Now I am a stickler for keeping track of, and I could probably go back because I never delete emails. I got emails going back into the, <laughs> into the 1990s. Right? Good Lord. Um, I remember you reaching out to me on LinkedIn and I I think I accepted yes. And I was like, well, who's, who is she? I don't even know who she is. And then didn't, you know, think about it. And we ended up physically meeting. I think mm -hmm. it was Nate's meeting. Yep, it was. I was like, oh, you're Kelly. And <laughs> person stalking me on LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you had started your company, the Nexus Research Group. Yep. And you were talking about work and business and things like that. And I think it was from that point on, I forgot which contract we started out working on together, mm -hmm. but that was when I first met you. You were listening into my conversation with Dr. Kelly Burton, and she's about to discuss one of her companies. So let's start with the Nexus Research Group. You yeah. are age what? Huh, probably 32. 32. Were you? Well, yeah. Well, no. you in your late 20s, but you had finished your doctorate, though. Well, maybe not because I may have still been at Emory and still and been doing consulting on the side before it had formalized into an actual company. Okay. Um, because I started NRG in 2009. So let's start there. Whenever okay. you started or wherever you yeah. incorporated. Yeah. Let's, let's take it there. So how did you go from, now what, would you, what did you get your doctorate in? Political science. Uh-huh. Okay. And so my dissertation was on affordable housing policy. While I was a graduate student at Emory, I had an internship at NeighborWorks America. And mm. they're a housing international housing intermediary. Once my internship wrapped up, they said, well, Kelly, we still have some work to do on this project. How about we hire you as a consultant? And I was so excited because they were paying me like $30 an hour on this project or something. <laughs> It's like, oh my God, it's the most money I've ever made in my life. <laughs> uh, I was very, very excited. I, mean, I don't know, it may have been $50 an hour, but whatever it was, it was like, and to me, in 2008, 2007, it was, it was more money than I ever made. And I was very excited about it. Um, so that's how I had gotten to the consulting world. So I had been consulting for about maybe two to three years 
while still in graduate school, wrapping up my PhD. What is the Nexus Research Group? Why that? Why going from poli-sci? What's the connection? When I was in graduate school, I had actually started focusing on African politics. I was admitted as an Africanist, somebody who studies African politics, because I was interested in democratization in West Africa. However, the the professor who, for which that was his, his area of expertise, he left when I was coming on, when wow. I was onboarding. And I was left without somebody to pretty much sponsor my scholarship in the program. And no one at the department seemed to be faced one way or the other. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? So I was also interested in city politics and local politics, urban politics, and that was under American politics. So I switched from comparative politics, African studies, to American politics, focusing on urban issues. So that's how I got there. And then when I did my intern at NeighborWorks, I was introduced to community development, and I did research on gentrification. And so that's how I kind of went from the hard politics of urban governments or American politics to more issues that impact local communities, gentrification, community development, economic development. And so that, that's the space that I really started my career and decided to write my dissertation on affordable housing policy because I wanted to have a better understanding about what were the conditions that supported the creation of redistributive policies or policies that had a very strong kind of social bent. That's how that all developed. In terms of creating Nexus Research Group, when it was about time to graduate, I knew I did not want to teach. That was not my gift, especially teaching undergraduates. I enjoyed training because I did a good bit of that at NeighborWorks. And so I enjoyed training, teaching adults, not so much teaching 18. 19 year olds you can imagine why <laughs> that is a, that's a special calling uh, yes. indeed indeed and so up until that point as i mentioned i had been making twelve thousand dollars a year so i figured <laughs> if i started my own small business and made more than that i was winning right right off the top i already had evidence that i could make fifty dollars an hour right right twenty thousand thirty forty dollars an hour whatever it was and so I was like, rock on, like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take this, I'm going to take this on. So the cool thing about it is when I was at Office of University and Community Partnerships, I was exposed to all this opportunity out in the community. So you just mentioned the way that you and I met at a, a local a community event that was put on by a colleague of ours. But based on my role at OUCP, which often involved a lot of kind of interviewing and stakeholder interviews. Kelly was the qualitative research person. Mm -hmm. And so if we were doing a huge project and it required 30 interviews with everyone from the mayor, the city council people, or the head of this organization or the head of that organization, Kelly was the one who went out and had the interview. So I had all these really great conversations with folks and relationship and rapport with people. And so when I graduated, I had this Rolodex and I was able to reach out to folks and say, hey, I'm starting my own small business. If you've got something that you feel fits within my wheelhouse, think of me. And so that's essentially how my small business grew, how NRG grew. So to be honest, over the course of my career with Nexus, I never did any marketing. I never struggled to find work because I had established all these relationships while in graduate school. And um, I worked really hard to produce quality work and a lot of business just kind of repeated. Yeah, yeah, that's one thing I've always appreciated about about you. And I always said, you know, if I needed a, a business partner, you would have been it. Oh, um, I appreciate that, Vaughn. Yeah. <laughs> always dependable, always would get stuff done and, and be you know, really, really tight. So that's great. So I think there's some lessons there, right? about how oh, you start out, you got to write this 20-page business plan, and yep. you got this target marketing, who's your audience, nothing wrong with that. One entrepreneurship tip, but it doesn't sound like that was the path you've taken with Nexus, or at least in the early days. It was networking, word of mouth. Looking back on that, what would you say to some 22-year-old, 25-year-old, 28-year-old who planning to start their first company? I'd say be prepared to hustle and be excellent in everything you do. Like be ready to work hard, be really, really good at what you do. Focus on relationships, be kind, 
have a good attitude because that's essentially what people remember. So for the most part, folks have to like you. <laughs> if people don't like you and they're not going to want to work with you. So it's really important that you cultivate those relationships and let people know you appreciate them. Let people know that you appreciate their business. So you know this, Vaughn, for years. Yeah, where's, where's the popcorn? Baby? <laughs> where's the popcorn? <laughs> it was like I know. <laughs> the holiday gifts were important for me to get done. And I was so consistent with this. <laughs> those things, those little touches matter. People remember. And now, you know, there's like two Garrett's popcorns in Atlanta. So people can just go to Linux Mall and get Garrett's popcorn if, that, if that's what they want. But back then, you know, seven, eight years ago, that was a big deal. People had to fly out to Chicago to get a, a tin of Garrett's popcorn. So right. that was my little signature thing. And it would come in NRG cans. Find ways to let your, your clients know that you appreciate and be really good at what you do. Do some free stuff. Like, I won't name any, but there are some organizations in Atlanta you know, they needed a website content uh, and I did that, but I was able to put their name on my early bio and uh, list of clients. Nobody knew that I didn't charge them any money to put together this content uh, or that I don't do website content and copyright. Like that's not what I do, but I write, I wrote a dissertation. Surely I can crank out some content for a website. So I did a good number of that just to get like high profile nonprofits and agencies on my list of clients. You have to be willing to do the work and it's not gonna come easy, but it'll come if you're, if you're persistent. Okay. So you kind of talked about communications and mm -hmm. what you had said to me, my unofficial godmother told me when I was 20 and it took me till I was about 35 to get it. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how talented you are. People have to like you. Yep right? Yep. Not only the good work that you've done over the years, but it's how you walk in the world. Mm -hmm. And like you said, being a nice person. And I think our younger generation, especially millennials, and I know oftentimes they get a bad rap, but I'm even seeing it in the younger generation. They lack certain critical social skills that you need to effectively engage. And maybe by the time they're into their careers, it'll be different, but we're human beings and human beings are incredibly relational. And I still believe if you wanna be successful, you have to be able to navigate in social spaces. And I think of the young people and how difficult it is for them to hold a conversation, mm. um, for them to engage with you and not be distracted. And I think for us, I'm a, I'm a Generation Xer, and so mm -hmm. we didn't grow up on technology. So we can go cold turkey. A lot of you know, some people struggle, but I think most <laughs> of my colleagues, right? If you, we were we're getting better at self managing because we weren't raised on it. So it's kind of like, yeah, I need this to operate in the world, but I can pull back. I get this sense that there's a real kind of addiction in the younger generation because they're, they've been raised on it and their the neurons in their brains have kind of fired around the use of technology. So I think, I don't, I don't know, there's a whole lot of conversation and chatter about the implications of that. So being able to engage in social spaces as a entrepreneur is, is critically important. Excellent. I'm going to chalk that up to networking and face-to-face -face yep. and reaching yep. out to your clients, letting them know you appreciate them. And I might mm -hmm. actually still have one of those tins. <laughs> in the kitchen you, uh, you, you can repurpose it you right know, exactly. uh -huh. I'm like, oh yeah i'm thinking about Kelly. <laughs> Kelly gave us the popcorn um so that's good stuff so mm -hmm. let's 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 fast forward a little bit so you go nexus yeah let's talk about that gap between nexus and founders of color <laughs> okay <laughs> let's do it you are listening to the new note this is where we discuss how transformational professionals started in life and how their career may or may not be where they originally envisioned it and may not be the same in the future. So in 2011, I started to have these really severe symptoms. Um, I had these heart palpitations, my hair was falling out, I had really bad shakes, um, super jittery. And when I went to the doctor, they told me that my thyroid levels were off the chart. 
And so they sent me home with medication right away. They couldn't believe it taking me that long to come in. But kind of going back to our earlier conversation of starting this small business, being very busy from the beginning, um, have a lot of moving parts and all this stuff was happening. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, I'm just really busy. I'm just probably a little stressed. I'm sure I'm fine. Well, all the while, my body was going through this major change. One of the symptoms that regardless of you know the, the medication I was on, it just would not ease is I would have these very severe sweats. And so I would be in situations where I'm supposed to be presenting, doing a talk or presenting on some really important research or whatever, and I'd be sweating bullets. And it made me incredibly insecure. Uh, it caused me to completely update my wardrobe and everything became black because I'm like, I don't want to be embarrassed by the fact that I'm constantly overheating. After having enough of those experiences, I decided to, to um, I remember going to the department store and being in the intimate apparel section and looking around and all I saw was like a lot of lacy frilly stuff and a lot of like shapewear. And I couldn't find like one thing that I could wear under my clothes to just help maybe keep me cool or just maybe give me like the little barrier of protection if I started to completely sweat out. And I thought about how my husband put on an undershirt every day and how most men, my dad put on an undershirt, my uncles and my grandfather. And the reason most men put on an undershirt is for that very function, right? To just yep. kind of give you a little bit of layer of protection. Yep. I'm like, why don't women have one of those? We, have, we sweat too, we get hot. <laughs> um, and so I remember standing in the intimate apparel section just being super frustrated to say, okay, so this is the 21st century. Women lead very dynamic lives. And when it comes to the clothes we wear under our clothes, it's still all about what's going to make me sexy or what's going to make me skinny. Like, is that all we care about today? Like, is that all when you it down is that what women it's kind of like so probably more so out of frustration my own personal frustration societal frustration i uh launched bodyology and bodyology is a tech-based apparel company where we transfer the technology that you find in active wear like under armor nike dry fit lululemon we take that technology and we deploy it in clothes that women wear under their clothes so camisas, tank tops, t-shirts, slip shorts, so that they would have that technology working in their clothes throughout the day. Because we would say, women are not just active in the gym or on the trail, they're active all day long. So why not have that technology working for you all day long? And it was a really great experience. I think I, I went into it very naive, thinking, oh, well, I've got this, you know, this great consulting firm, um, and I've been relatively successful with that. And I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah, I got this thing on lock. Um, and launching Bodyology and not realizing how fundamentally different it is to run a product-based business versus a service-based business. Mm -hmm. I started NRG at my coffee table, you know, on my couch uh, with a laptop and an EIN number and a dream, right? Right. <laughs> And uh, all I needed was a Wi-Fi connection and I could make money. Well, when you've got a product, that's not the case. It's very capital intensive. And you're talking about a design process. You're talking about raw materials, manufacturing, branding, marketing. And it's very difficult to crack through the noise when you're selling a product, especially for a product that no one uses. A lot of people think it's super sexy to be the first out with this or the first out with that. They have a saying, pioneers get shot settlers get rich um, <laughs> yeah and it's true right? we all want to be pioneers but you know pushing westward in, in, in the early days they caught a bullet the fo folks who came behind them who were able to kind of take advantage of that early movement and they're the ones who are able to take advantage so it's very difficult to be early stage whatever when you're the first out there to do something it's easier for folks to come behind you when you have removed the friction. And so it was very, very challenging. It was really challenging. And at the end of the day, we had a good three-year run and we had some national press, which was really exciting. And we got scouted by Macy's to be a part of this really great vendor development program. So we were that close to getting into a brick and mortar retailer, but I was just not able to make it profitable. 
And at the end of the day, it cost me about $150,000 of my own personal investment because I didn't bring any investors in. I didn't take out any loans. That was the nest egg that I had built through NRG. And I assure you, my husband <laughs> wishes we would have spent it differently, um, that we would have put it in a different vehicle. But at the end of the day, lessons learned. I wasn't able to make it profitable. And in the beginning of 2017, we closed our online store and we decided to, to shutter for the immediate future. This is your host, Vaughn Nkosi, and you've been listening to The New Note. If you like what you've heard, please follow us on iTunes and please remember to rate the show. You can also find us on social media. Search for us under New Note or Next New Note depending on your social media platform. When you see the jazzy saxophone watercolor logo, that's us. So there's a lot of stuff in there. Is there anything that you saw in that process that you think if it had just gone right instead of left, it would still be something that you would be working on? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's so funny. I was, in a, I was on a panel with a colleague of mine who was on my advisory board for audiology. And I was talking about kind of the experience. And he chimed in, he said, well, Kelly, you know, I think you're forgetting something. You ran out of money. <laughs> you know, that was the reason why you weren't able to advance audiology. So it wasn't because it was a failed idea or because you, know, you didn't have the proper leadership. You ran, out of, you ran out of cash. And just when we were starting to innovate and pivot, I had gotten to the end of my resources. And, you know, what you, what you ultimately learn is it takes money to make money, especially with this sort of business. So would you attribute any of your challenges to race or gender? When I was trying to de- decide whether or not to launch FOC, I did some research and I found that on average, white-led firms generate 10 times the revenue of black-led firms. But when you unpack that, white folks enter the world with 10 times the inherited wealth as black folks. And so the chances of you being able to scale that business is, is, is slim to none. So am I arguing that there's a one-to-one relationship between the amount of inherited wealth you have access to and your ability to grow and scale a company? Maybe not a direct relationship, but there's something there. And what we know is that black and brown folks disproportionately lack access to the sort of capital that you need to get beyond the lifestyle stage of a small business, which is where my, my, I had had my success and where my success had essentially plateaued. Lifestyle mm-hmm. success. Explain yep. that. You're like, you get to that. What does that mean? So we're like a lifestyle business. Uh, most minority entrepreneurs, well, most entrepreneurs, period, are solopreneurs. So they have no employees. A business means your business can operate whether you're there or not. And for 90% of us, that is not the case. So when I say a lifestyle, that means you're generating several hundred thousand dollars a year, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars a year. You've essentially created your own job. Very helpful. Let's jump out of bodyology and let's jump into founders of color. You're still running uh, yeah. Nexus. I am. This is part of that whole entrepreneurial hustle, right? And the shizzle. Yeah. <laughs> and keeping... And, and, you know, keeping these things going, the pieces that make money, that subsidize the pieces that make a little less, maybe, or you have been taking lessons from Nexus. Yep. yep. You, you've taken lessons from Bodyology. Yep. Started Founders of Color. Yep. Take us there. Why don't we go ahead and spend these last 10 minutes or so talking about Founders of Color and the lessons learned and what you can impart? So coming out of Bodyology, I... Um, kind of downloaded my lessons learned in this piece that I wrote for Huffington Post. And it was like seven things you can do to keep your business out of the startup graveyard or something like that. That piece kind of triggered really interesting conversations with colleagues and friends. And I realized that many of us were all in the same boat. We were really ambitious, highly educated. Many had corporate background experience. However, there was this ceiling for most of us. Um, We didn't know how to grow our businesses. We didn't have access to the mentors. The people, many of us were first generation entrepreneurs, so there wasn't that institutional 
knowledge within our, within our family. We didn't have access to the capital, right? So there was this lack of access to the things that you need in order to scale a business, including information and knowledge. Like, what's the blueprint? What do I need to do? And as a result, many of us were kind of bumping around in the dark. If you're a minority entrepreneur in, in 2017, there are a couple of outlets, right? You can go the traditional peer networking groups that are focused on entrepreneurship or dedicated to entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs come together and it's all about kind of helping you access the things you need to grow your business. However, in those spaces, they're incredibly non-diverse. And when you get in, you find there is no real value around diversity. Um, not to say that they are opposed to people of color coming online, you know, all are welcome, but they're not going to go above and beyond to recruit and, and, and achieve greater diversity. Um, so there's that. And then a lot of the organizations that are supposed to support minority entrepreneurs, they're just having a very different conversation. I mean, it was usually, it felt like when you step into the room that you're going back to 1998 like it was that you instantly were transported back in time. Well, um, let's hold on. Yeah, uh-huh. let explain that one. I <laughs> I know I know where you're coming from. I know where you're going, but I think for some of our listeners, they're not going to get that. Yep. Yep. Of uh, so, what what would walking into, you know, this technical assistant uh-huh. kind of environment look like? Uh huh. Uh-huh. As, you, as, I, as I'm going to explain, I think there are issues in, in both realms. But you, you go into a chamber event, and I, this one that I attended at the beginning of last year, it was the state of minority entrepreneurs, the state of Atlanta or something like that. And so I'm thinking, oh, great, I'm going to go in here and get some really good data on the state of small business for minority entrepreneurs in Atlanta. Great, can't wait. And I get there, and it's a supplier diversity panel, right? And I'm like, okay. And it's the same, like, four people that you see all the time. And you exchange cards and nobody ever calls you back. Nobody ever emails you back. And they tell you what you need to do. You need the certification. You need boom, 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 boom. And, uh, you know, they, and then sign up for this business plan 101 class. And I'm thinking, all right, I've been in business for eight. I don't need, I, I've written business plan. I don't need a business 101. Right? So it's like, okay, that's fine. But then I go uptown and they're talking about tactics and strategies. And when I say uptown, like the bucket, and they're talking about like list building and digital marketing and incubators and accelerators and pitch competitions and online learning platforms. And you're like, well, shoot, this sounds good. I need some of this. <laughs> they go to these spaces. It is like 70 people and it's one brown or black person. Mm-hmm. So it's this, this chronically underserved group of entrepreneurs um, who are not getting what they need in either space. Again, back to this earlier conversation about community versus like rigor or academic rigor versus community. It's here we are again, like feeling supported versus having access to the resources and information and stuff that you really need to advance in life, whether it's academically in, in, in terms of your education or whether it's in, in a small business setup or setting. I hadn't thought about it until our conversation. It was like this dualism keeps popping up. Either I feel supported and the resources that I get access to are kind of womp, 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 or I get access to these really great resources, but I feel completely isolated and marginalized. So at the end of the day, FOC is all about helping growth-oriented folks who want to grow, entrepreneurs of color, to learn, connect, scale, and thrive get the learn, the access to the information, connect, access to the relationships, scale, like putting it all together, executing, making it actionable, measuring it, watching it, watch the, the ways that these innovations are taking root within your organization and thrive. So the hope is that at the end of the day, we're able to close the growth gap because you hear a lot of folks talk about the wealth gap. Well, guess what? Wealth is generated one of two ways. Inheritance, we've missed that boat right? Um, and entrepreneurship. So if we're going to close this, this wealth gap, we need to master the mechanics of growth, of, of entrepreneurship, because that's the only way we're going to get there. Gotcha. No, I appreciate that. So if people want to know more about Founders of Color, where should they go? Yeah, absolutely. So foundersofcolor.com and our social handle is at Founders of Color. So you can reach us online any number of ways. You are listening to The New Note. 
This is a transfer of knowledge for entrepreneurs and others sharing wisdom to our listeners and where they share their next new note. My one last closing question. Yes. What is your next new note? Ah, my next new note. You know, for me right now, it's about creating a case study or model for our members at Founders of Color. Because it's one thing to say, oh, we're going to help you scale your business. But if we don't have a solid business model ourselves, then it's going to be very difficult to advocate for that. So for me, my goal is to commit the foreseeable future, the next three five years or so, really building out this network because there's a lot of momentum and interest and excitement, but converting that into a sustainable business model so that regardless of what my next new note is, the (laughs) infrastructure exists for the work to sustain. I tell folks all the time, we need new institutions. And I think a lot of times we bemoan the fact that the institutions that have been around for a long time are no longer serving us. And it's like they may have served their time. Um, They were really excellent at doing what they did 40, 50, 60 years ago, 20, 30 years ago. We need new institutions that are responsive to the needs of people of color today. What ought those institutions, what should they look like? And so at FOC, it's about how do we build a hyper-relevant institution that's in service to people of color. And when it comes down to it, it's all about economy because you can really fix all the other problems with money. It's just that the people who have money are not super interested in fixing our problems. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We haven't even gotten into the, the whole angel uh, investor, the venture capital space, but that may be a brown bag. Yeah, yeah I'm always up for a brown bag. <laughs> so we'll do that over a bite, and uh, hopefully by then we'll have you know my colleague in that space on, and we can do a nice uh, three-way conversation on that. Well, you, but, you talk, uh, talk about cultural references. Where where I come from, a brown bag is a whole different. That's a whole yes. different kind of thing. Yes. That was that's the drink. The drink came in the brown bag. Right. Oh, you added you added yet another one to it. I wasn't even going there with the with the forty ounce. Forty ounce. <laughs> that was, oh, a, man. That was a, in Canada. That was that was your typical on the corner. They'd have their own brown bag. And that's they, funny. And they weren't bringing lunch, liquid okay. lunch. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's funny. I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, well, Kelly, I appreciate you. Thanks for doing this. Sounds good. Thank you, Vaughn. Okay. Thanks, Kelly. Be well. You have been listening to my conversation with Dr. Kelly Burton, the founder of Founders of Color. Hope you have enjoyed it. The New Note is a product of the Institute for Local Innovations based in New Orleans. Please visit the Institute on the web at ili360.org and consider becoming a patron. Your support will go towards the production of the podcast. As an ILI patron, you will have access to special content, including advance notice and access to future podcast episodes. Lastly, I'll leave you with this question. What is your new note? Thank you for joining us.